my, it's my pleasure to introduce to you our first speakers of the day, um, Ethan Matat and Doug Weckenman. Did I say that? Got it. Yeah. I know. I, I did my homework. Um, they were deeply involved in the annex. They were deeply involved in Messenger, and you may remember them as they were part of the AC project that went all over the world, um, and which was launched in a, an idea from the spirit here. They're co-founders of a satellite church of our own here, Red Rocks. They started Satellite Church of Red Rocks in Austin. And they're going to talk to you about the, um, no, that's, yes, that's tomorrow. They're going to talk to you about the next generation uh, ministering to Gen Z. Now, and I don't know if you know this, but I am not a member of Gen Z. I, I you know, I, I know. If you're born between 1997 and 2012, whatever, I, I've always been a member of John's black and white world. And I really like that. And I, even this kind of thing with screens here wasn't here before. Uh, and this is light. This isn't a video. This isn't anything. And I remember on my very first call to Pinewood Springs, I went up there and I decided I was going to show a video to uh, the congregation. It was a very brief one. And I was not yet ordained. And I remember setting up, we didn't have screens, we had a, a television, and then I had like a, a VCR thing, and I'm pl plugging it in, and this lady walked in and she said, you brought a video into church? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I think you're really gonna like it. It really, it's got some good stuff on it. And she said, I guess the brain cells don't kick in till after ordination. <laughs> and I thought, Ah, the people of God. I'm <laughs> and at the end of the day, I said, so Ruth, what'd you think? And she said, eh, it's okay. And so the, the deal with Gen Z is, and I don't understand it, they, they want almost everything that you want. Community, they want security, they want compassion, they want all that we have in Christ, all that we've grown up with. It's just they do it differently. And uh, what I'm excited about is that Ethan and Doug uh, know Christ, know and love Jesus Christ, and bring his word in that format to those people. People all have different music tastes. People all have different things like that, what they expect in church. But uh, the message is the same, and it's still speaking. So please welcome with me Ethan Matat and Doug Weckenman. All right. Hey, thank you so much for having us. My name is Ethan Matat, and this is Doug Weckenman. Um, we are also not members of Generation Z, though I might look like a hippie college student here in Boulder. Um, we're millennials, maybe even worse. Um, um, I was just standing here in worship and thinking about how amazing it is to be back in this room, and we'll talk a little bit about our stories and what this place means to us, but... I graduated high school, I'm from Denver, went to Highlands Ranch High School, and I wanted, all I wanted was to be in Southern California. Shout out to Dave Palmer. And um, I got out there, I was in my first semester of school at the University of San Diego, and one night I was with some friends and there was a football game on ESPN and it was the Buffs. It was a game here at Folsom Field. 
And something in me in that moment was like, I need to be there. And the reason I said that at that moment was because it looked like way more partying and way more fun than what I was doing in San Diego. Um, and so I transferred and made my way to Boulder thinking that I needed to be there and certainly did plenty of that and had a lot of fun at football games. Um, but what I had no idea about was that the reason that God brought me to Boulder was to come to this place, to be in this room, to hear the gospel, to put my faith in Jesus, and to start a walk with him in a journey that I did not expect. I did not show up to Boulder wanting to be in church, wanting anything to do with God, not thinking he wanted anything to do with me. And it was nights in this place with Joe leading worship and um, the gospel for the first time connecting in my life in a, in a really dark time in my life um, that led me to a completely different trajectory in life than I ever would have guessed. If you told me when I showed up in Boulder I'd be a pastor of a church, I would have laughed. And I have a lot of buddies that I grew up with that still laugh that I'm a pastor. Um, but the faithfulness, like Joe said, of generations of people who have made it possible for somebody like me to walk into a place like this and get to know Jesus is something that I will have gratitude for for my whole life. And so it's an honor to be back here. Um, real quick, I'll show you a picture of my family. Uh, I am married with, uh, been married for eight years and have a three-year-old son, Ezekiel. We call him Zeke. And uh, we have another boy on the way due in January. And uh, my wife's Stephanie. Um, yeah, and we live in Austin, Texas, where we get to pastor a church with this guy, my best buddy, Doug. Hello, everybody. My name is Doug. It is a real honor to be here with y'all. And be, I'm trying to say y'all more because we live in Texas now. And so you kind of, you know, you got to play the part to reach people for Jesus. And so, um, actually, nobody in Austin really says y'all. Um, but to be back in this room is a very special thing. I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But my family, here's, here's my family. Um, just like Ethan, there we go. I married up as well, way up. Uh, that's Samantha, my wife, and then Will, and then Kinsley. And yeah, they are the best. And shout out to my wife, Sam. Like John uh, mentioned, we moved from Denver to Austin about four years ago to start a church. And... I always say, uh, you know what, what takes more sacrifice and courage and guts to leave everything familiar, to move across the country, to start a church because an invisible God inaudibly told you to, is leaving everything familiar to move across the country to start a church because your husband claims an invisible God inaudibly told him to. And so shout out to my wife. She is incredible. Uh, but yeah, that's my family. And uh, I, I actually, um, we met through the Annex as well. And so this place in so many ways has changed my life. Um, I, in a lot of similar ways to Ethan, my entire life have always been looking to fill this void that Scripture talks about, especially in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that there is eternity written into the hearts of every human being. And so we all feel this this, this groove that is the size of forever. And only God is the size of forever and wants to complete that and, and fill that. And until we realize that in Jesus, we will be searching everywhere in everything under the sun, trying desperately. And all the stuff kind of works until it doesn't. And that is certainly my testimony. And moved to Boulder for college um, still trying everything I could find to, to find this completion and on paper, you would think that I found it, 
on paper, you'd think I had everything going for me, and it was my junior year. It was 2008, and I, I was about to transfer because I still, I was like, well, maybe it's a different school. Maybe what I'm looking for is found in a different city. And on one Tuesday night, this group of girls invited me to the annex. And I sat right about there. And I had heard, I kind of just knew deep down God was real my whole life. I just knew one day I'll I'll sort of come back to that. Um, Maybe one day when sin is no longer fun. You know, that's what I thought back in, in those days. And this was the year that CU was the number one ranked party school in the entire nation. And... We certainly contributed to that and had something to do with that. But on a Tuesday night, I sat right there, heard the gospel, and as a song was led called From the Inside Out, I stared at that cross with that stained glass and felt the Holy Spirit for the first time and received Jesus into my heart. Everything about my life changed. It was in that back corner that I had a leader speak something into me that he saw a call to ministry on my life. I never, like Ethan, like you, I I would laugh at that. I had all these plans worked out. Um, I was, uh, my dream was medical school and was on on track for that and had all these plans. And I like to say God came in and just ruined all of them (laughs) in the best possible way. He's good at that. And uh, somebody saw some potential for ministry in me and called it out of me, and I would have never seen it in myself. We were laughing with John right before this all started that one of our life verses is in Acts when it says, when people noticed that Peter and John were just ordinary and unschooled men, they realized, whoa, oh, you're good. That was, they realized this God thing must be real because it's not these knuckleheads. And that is, I think, our story as well. Our story for sure. I very much lived the prodigal son, the younger son's story, um, and Boulder's a great place to go try to chase that as a college student. And another story for another day, but reached the end of myself. And the only thing I knew to do at that point was try to go to church. I felt like God was mad at me. There was a warrant out for me that he was coming for me, and so I might as well just go try to, like, appease him, make amends, and then let me keep going and live in my life. And so I had had a few people I knew that invited me to the annex, I'd heard about it. I'd been given a water bottle on campus, and so I was aware there was a college ministry. I neglected to go for a long time, but when I finally reached that point where I didn't know what else to do, where else to go, I walked into this place, sitting right about, or a few of you are right back there, sat in here. The very first time I was here, they announced that we're going to be winter break mission trips, and one was going to Cuba, and I couldn't have put the words to it at the time, because I didn't even know what the Holy Spirit was, but the Holy Spirit just implanted in me you've got to go and I didn't know anyone going on the trip I didn't want to spend my winter break with Christians I didn't know what I believed about God and wasn't sure why I'd go to a communist country to help other people but um, signed up for that trip my life just started to be these steps that were made possible by this place I ran into him we'd gone to high school together in the lobby and we both had this look on our faces like why are you at church (laughs) why are you at church and uh, right in that time, two guys named Sam Ellis and Brandon Lead, who were seniors, they were a couple years older than us, we were going to start a small group, a core group for some lost guys on campus. They didn't tell us we were lost. That wasn't, wouldn't be a great sales pitch, but they invited us to be in their group, which we didn't want to do. And I remember the night that Doug picked me up, picked his younger brother Ryan up, who's a pastor at our church as well, 
We drove to this building because somehow I, Sam was interning, so we got to use the upstairs for our first core group meeting. And we were driving to this building, and we made a pact in the car. We said, whatever these Christian guys tell us, we will never stop partying. And, like, and we were dead serious. We all like, yeah, 100%, no way. And by the way, we never have. We, right. we still throw parties, but they look like church services now. <laughs> They're celebrations yeah. of Jesus and this amazing yeah. grace, yeah. But that's always, I think, that a spiritual gift of throwing parties. Yeah. They just now look different. Yeah, we get to throw parties on Sunday mornings now um, that are way better than the parties we threw on the hill on Friday and Saturday nights. But we, that group... And people starting to speak into our lives, um, the ministry that was here, mission trips, all of it started this um, journey for us. And God tends to use the last people, the least likely. And Joe could probably vouch for that, that if you walked into this room back around 2008, 2009, you would have said, those two guys are probably the last guys that should be pastors ever. And here we are now because that's what God does. And, um, and so we're so thankful to be here today. And now we, as we pastor a church in Austin, Texas, which is very similar culturally to Boulder, we kind of say we're from Boulder and Denver. And if those two had a baby in Texas, it would be Austin. And so we feel like that's the language we speak. That's the culture. That's like where we have come from. And so we now are, like you, navigating the church today. Um, and how do we reach the next generation? What does it look like in this world that seems like it is getting crazier every single day? We, planted, uh, we launched our church at the beginning of 2019, so we planted a church in historically the worst possible time to do that with the pandemic a year into our church and um, so many things to navigate. But we have, I think, always had this picture of ministry and doing what we do for the sake of the 19-year-old version of ourselves who were lost and who were broken and who had no idea where else to go and who wandered into a service at a place like this. And we want to create a home like that um, for a lot of people that are just like us. Do we have a picture of the 19-year-old versions of us? Just so you guys can get that. I want this to just burn into your memories today. Just... <laughs> we were happier than we look. We were. We were trying to be tough guys. Um, yeah, you can take that down. That will be so distracting for the rest of this. But... Um, you know, it's crazy. Sometimes when I tell people that um, God found me in Boulder, they go, no way, not a chance. Uh, you, you started following Jesus at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I was like, yeah, I'm, God is actually doing something amazing in Boulder and raising something up from the inside out. Uh, people say the exact same thing, by the way, about Austin. So right before we were about to move to Austin to start a church, um, I was having a conversation in a lobby at a different church with a very well-meaning Christian, but he said, he said something I'll never forget. He said, you guys are planning a church in Austin? He said, do not go to Austin. For dear, like, dear Lord, do not go to Austin. And then he looked at me with a straight face and said, nobody knows Jesus there. Do not go plant a church in Austin. And I just... I thought he was, I was like, are you kidding? You're, oh, you're not joking. Okay, I was like, isn't that, that's exactly why we're going to Austin. If nobody knows Jesus there, then let's go build a, a church right smack in the middle of that city, like the prodigal son story of the father welcoming his son home, like the, the front porch of that, of that home. Let's go build a front porch to welcome prodigals home. 
That's why we're going to Austin. And so you better believe people are getting saved in Austin, Texas, just like you better believe people are meeting Jesus in Boulder, Colorado. We have a God who is that good, and the best is yet to come. I really believe that with all of my heart. I really, really do. Yeah. And so we'll probably fill in a little bit more about that story of church planting in Austin as we go, but... Uh, Since we're talking about generations, I thought I would just start maybe from a 35,000-foot view so we could understand uh, our cultural moment of every generation present, and then we'll zoom in onto Generation Z. Uh, So let's just have some fun with it. Gen X, this is everybody born from 1965 to 1980. Do we have any Gen Xers in the room today? Okay. Okay, let's go. And then before that, I believe the baby boomers and then the silent generation and the, the, the greatest generation. And I will say this, I, I, um, being old is not an age thing, it's a spirit thing. I believe that with all my heart. Like, Mr. Kelly, it's, it was awesome to watch you lead worship up here with such a youthful passion. Passion is contagious. I believe, by the way, Gen Z responds to, to passion. What our world needs is Christians who are passionate about their faith. And so continue to just fan that into a flame because that is a weapon. Age is a, it's a spirit thing. I believe, by the way, and I'll come out swinging with this, it's the moment you start blaming the younger generations for the problems in the world, that's the day you get old in your spirit. So stay believing in the younger generations. Stay seeing the best in them. We could see all the problems. We could also see all the potential in every generation. And so we have for, for Gen X and for, for the boomers and, and then before that, I'm kind of speaking in, a, in generalizations here, but grew up in what we'll, we will call like apple pie America, where the pace was slower, morality was certainly higher, um, people trusted the government, you know, that was awesome, uh, blockbusters on every corner, um, there were churches that were full, and faith was just normal. People just kind of assumed everybody's a Christian, you know, that was that was. The norm, a lot of us grew up in that. And then, and then something that shook the planet started in 1981, and it was the millennial generation. <laughs> for everybody born between roughly 1981 and 1995. So for me and Ethan, we were born right smack, right in the, the middle of that. And so for us, we, we were born in to that apple pie America and have a memory of, of faith being normal and everybody at school being a Christian, and DVDs were this crazy cool new technology, and Jurassic Park looked real, you know, and a blockbuster on every corner, and grew up with TV shows like Boy Meets World that like actually taught morality and stuff like that. But the millennials are what's called the bridge generation, because no other time in history has culture changed and shifted as rapidly as it did while we were growing up. With in 07, the introduction of the iPhone and and the internet and social media and how much more information is just available at our fingertips and it has changed everything. And what has happened is faith in this sort of now post-Christian world is not normal. And so millennials are, are, are sort of very comfortable with that memory of of how it used to be, but also very comfortable with how it is now. 
And so here's what I'll say, and we want to relate this to the prodigal son story that Ethan talked about in Luke 15. Um, For millennials and younger, we have something called what Tim Keller would refer to as a Jesus haunt. Where we can run from God, we can run from church, we can run from our faith, but we have a memory of it that haunts us in the best way. And so we can come to college and run a thousand miles an hour away from our faith and try to to get away from God, but we remember it. And this is my story, this is his story, and at some point we, we can run back to it. So we have this Jesus, and the thing about Generation Z is they were born into a completely post-Christian world. So you think about the prodigal son story, he was born home, he left home, but he remembered home, so he ran back home. And Generation Z is the first generation to be born with no Jesus haunt. They were born to go Luke 15 on us, basically in the faraway lands where the prodigal son ran off to. With no memory of faith and no memory of God. And so our mission in reaching Generation Z has to look different because of it. The phrase, build it and they will come, is no longer true with Generation Z. It's not. And that introduces a lot of, it gets a lot more gritty and a lot more complicated. That we as followers of Jesus kind of can't really take the roles as, as priests anymore where they'll come and then we'll do a program and people will meet Jesus. But now really kind of have to be missionaries in our own city. To go and, and get them. And I think, man, what an opportunity, though. Complicated, absolutely. What an opportunity to, to be, to go and be the storytellers of the gospel. To go and be the, the goers and the sharers. To, to, like Jesus would say, be salt um, and stand out and make people wonder what it is about us that makes us so different. What it is that we have. Be a light in cities that can feel so, so dark. We are, we are missionaries to Generation Z. And I think that it can feel, there's almost a part of us that just laments like the old way of doing things and just expecting that people will show up to church isn't the case now that there is a part of us that that's just a bummer, like just sad. Um, But we have to turn from that and flip that script to see, like Doug said, the opportunity and really get back to our roots as the church because there was a time when a very small group of ordinary unschooled men were in a world where nobody knew what they were talking about. Nobody knew who Jesus was. There were rumors going around, but nobody had a real reference for this. This was the craziest story anyone had ever heard that these fishermen were telling everyone about this Messiah who had come and who had been killed, but who was very much alive. And we had to get back to our roots as the church of being missional and not expecting what has worked for a long time in this country is going to continue to work, and we have to go meet them where they are. We, we did youth ministry in Laguna Beach, California, right after we graduated and left here. And... Um, Our mentor and youth pastor, Sam, would tell us, hey, we'll do our youth service on Tuesday night, and some kids will come because their parents won't make them, but you need to go do what they're doing. If we're going to reach the kids in this city, if they're surfing, go surf with them. If they're skating, go skate with them. We have to go to them, 
And that, this becomes very complicated because in a lot of ways with Generation Z, we have to go meet them on social media. We have to go meet them in the places that they are. But I think there is, I mean, we, we're in our 30s and we feel lame in our own lobby at our church because there's so many 20-somethings, college students um, from the University of Texas, like, and we feel like they don't care what we have to say. You know, and so I think that's always an attitude that older generations can take on. Well, they don't even care anymore. The young generations, they don't even want anything to do with God. They're lost, they're too far gone, and they don't want to hear what I have to say. And that might be the attitude projected, but that's not the truth that's happening inwardly. I know for me, like, as a college student, I would have appeared to not want to hear anything from anybody, and I know everything. But when an older guy from this church named Dave Lee asked me to go get breakfast, when Don Bachman took me to lunch, those were some of the most treasured moments I have as a college student because it wasn't a bunch of my peers that we all think we know what we're doing, but we all have no idea what we're doing. It was a few people that had some years and wisdom on me that sat down and said, hey, you matter, and there's value in your life, and I don't see you as too far gone. I don't see you as the problem in this world. I see you as the future of the church, and we have to, we have to understand that young people do want to hear that, that they do want mentorship in their life, that they do want people older than them to speak truth into their life. They probably won't tell you that. Youth ministry, young adult ministry is the toughest ministry because you rarely see the fruit of it, but we disqualify ourselves, whether it's because of age or we don't understand TikTok or whatever it is, while there is a generation that is on all of those platforms and and consuming everything they can because they're desperately looking for exactly what you have, which is Jesus Christ, which is wholeness, which is salvation, which is the ability to put your head on your pillow at night and realize God's got me and he actually loves me. He's not mad at me. He hasn't written me off, but he is calling me home. The shift in my life that happened here in Boulder because of this place, because of people like Don that spoke that truth into my life, it changed everything for me. But it took people who were willing to step out of their comfort zone and into mine uh, to get there. And that, that is where it can get really difficult. But I think when it comes to Generation Z and trying to reach them, I think we'll go to conferences, you'll sit at something like this and hope, like, give us the five tactics. Like, if we use TikTok in this way correctly and we, we know to do this event or whatever, that's going to be the way we do it. But it always comes back to, I think, the deeper things that are innate in every human being that we all want, that you do have to give. And that the message of Jesus is still the message of Jesus, just the method may have to change in the way that we portray that. But some, we put down a couple things that we really see Gen Z coming into our church. What is it that they really want? What are they coming looking for? And we have a ton of people who have no context of faith walking into our church every Sunday. They didn't grow up hearing about Jesus. They don't know that the life they're living right now isn't what's best for them. They don't know that sin is sin. What are the things that they really crave deep down, um, starting with authenticity? I don't know if that's you or me. I don't know. Sorry again. (laughs) Um, Yeah, authenticity. And I think that Gen Z is very, very hungry for that. And and I'll say one more thing about authenticity and then when it comes to age as well. um, Because I feel that in every room I'm in. I'll step into some rooms and go, I'm I'm too young, nobody's going to listen to me. I step into other rooms, I go, I'm too old, nobody's going to listen to me. I have this friend who uh, tells a story about growing up and getting haircuts and was always insecure about his hair and never liked it. And he said, I'd get a haircut and for like two weeks it would look terrible. And then there'd be one day where it would look awesome. And then after that, it looked terrible again. 
And then I get another haircut and the pattern just continues and continues. I hear this from so many. I feel it. I've heard it from other leaders as well over like from every age that we follow Jesus. You find yourself in like leading a group or wanting to make an impact and you feel like you're too young. And then for like one week, you feel like I'm the perfect age for this. And then for the rest of your life, you're like, I'm, I'm too old now to do this. And I think that is just so in our heads. And I, I, like, I, I would be willing to guess, I mean, because I feel it, that when it comes to um, relationships, like, Don, you're the perfect example of this, of initiating towards a younger generation, that there can be a lot of fear of, am I not going to be accepted? Do they even want to hear what I have to say? And what I promise you is there is more fear on their end to ever initiate in, in the direction of somebody in an older generation. There's, there's way more fear. And so I just want to encourage you guys because I know a lot of Gen Zers um, who are so hungry for guidance and so hungry for wisdom, I think you would be very surprised how much they like you and want to hear what you have to say. And I would pray that you'd walk away from this room today going, they, they, people like me, they want to hear what I have to say. Gen Z likes me, they want to hear what I have to say. I have a lot of good things to say. And if you could believe that walking into every room you walk into, regardless of the age in that room, but especially if it's Gen Z, I think um, like they like me and want to hear what I have to say way more than I think, way more than they might let me believe at first. But there's way more fear to initiate towards you than even there is for you to initiate towards them. Uh, there's a great quote, I think it's from Craig Rochelle, that people don't want someone who's always right, they want someone who's real. And I think we have a fear in ministry, we have a fear in reaching people um, that we're not going to have all the right answers that we're not going to package things perfectly, that we're not going to say what they um, will receive exactly how they'll hear it, whatever, and uh, disqualify ourselves again just like that when what we see Generation Z desperately wants is authenticity and people who are just real with them about their stories, about their flaws, and about the goodness of Jesus in their lives. I, I think that we tend to think that this generation is so narcissistic because of social media and all they do is just put up images of themselves, and I think that actually points to this great insecurity in them that they don't believe that they have this value that they're trying to earn every single day by getting enough likes and followers and comments and people paying attention to what they're doing. And what they're really showing us is this desperate cry saying, hey, somebody see me. Somebody pay attention to me. But all they, are, all they know to do because of this image culture is put out the best and put out this fake version of everything. And so what they're consuming and what they're getting, it's not real. And, and at some point, you consume that enough, but it, it doesn't fill you, right? There's this eternal appetite in all of us and we're all trying to fill it with a bunch of temporary things. And we experience that in our college lives through partying and all of the things of this world thrown at us. And Generation Z is doing the exact same thing, just in new ways. Uh, but we, we have the opportunity to show them something that is actually real and authentic in Jesus and our relationships with him. And I think some of those lunches, some of those moments I had with people who told stories of their ups and downs and their failures and their flaws and how Jesus was this rock and Jesus was that, that hope and he was that peace and he was that lifeline. He was everything. Um, that broke through to me because I had gotten to that point where I kind of was taking an honest assessment of my life going, none of this works. 
I don't really know how to say that because everybody around me is trying all the same stuff. And I think there's a cry from this young generation saying the exact same thing. This isn't working. All of the things that I'm seeing and consuming, this is not working. Can somebody please tell me what's real? We can't put our trust in our politicians. We can't put our trust in so many different areas in this country. We can't trust the news. We can't trust sources of anything. It becomes like, is anything real and is anything true? Which I think would point to another thing that this generation really, really wants that we don't think they want, which is just truth. Like the truth, the truth of Jesus. Everybody's developing this idea of my truth. And my truth needs to be what everybody else believes. But that also doesn't work. And they, they are looking around and not finding truth anywhere they're looking. And we have the truth. But so often we silence ourselves with it because we're either too worried to offend somebody with it, which Jesus was never worried about. We, we don't believe that we have the perfect way of doing it. We have to be right when they want us to be real about who Jesus is. And we're living in such a relative culture when it comes to truth that we can lament that it seems darker than ever. That means the light shines all the more brightly. The salt is so much saltier right now because there's not much out there. In a relative culture, truth is, it stands out like crazy. And we have people coming into our church who are hearing the truth of the gospel and it is so counter to everything they believe and it hurts and it stings on the flesh, but their soul is going, give me more of that. I need that. And we all have that well in each of us, and that's what Jesus came to offer. Um, and I think we need to be bold in the way that we share the truth of what he did and who he is. And showing them, too, that truth is, uh, contrary to maybe popular belief today, truth is not this oppressive weight that is here to just only ever show you everything you're doing wrong and how you're missing the mark. I would say truth is way more like this North Star that cares about you finding your way home. When, when life and the world seems stormy, almost like all of us just feel like, I guarantee you for Gen Zers too, just I'm, a, I'm a, in a little boat, lost at sea, it's stormy, there's waves, I don't know sometimes where, where is north and south and east and west and where I'm going, and, and truth, this God who is truth is actually way more for your joy and way more for your peace and everything that you're looking for than even you are, than especially the world is and the, the brochure that the world is offering. I think that's why, I mean, that's why so many college students move to, to Boulder. That's why thousands of people are moving to Austin because these cities offer a brochure that says, what you're looking for, come here and you will find it. And it's got about a three to five year shelf life. Because it works until it doesn't. Eventually, you realize, once again, this, this groove in my heart is the size of eternity. And as good as stuff is under the sun, it's not the size of forever. And it's, it's, it's going to work until it doesn't. Until, I, until I'm left going, unless there's a God who can do this, I'm never going to find this. And what an opportunity to come in and, and offer truth and show people that hey, this God is for you. Um, this God is not trying to oppress you. He's tr truth is set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's actually here to, to liberate you. Um, but our culture for a while now has been kind of saying um, any sort of truth claim is oppressive. And what you need to do is get out from beneath that. I mean, it's the same thing that Adam and Eve fell for at the tree, which was, 
you can redefine for yourself what is right and what is wrong. And God's trying to rob from you. God is holding out on you. And so move to Boulder, move to Austin, redefine good and evil for yourself. And essentially what that's saying is you can sit on the throne in your own heart. And you can sort of play God in your own life. And it, it sounds appealing, uh, um, but I would have said the same thing standing in front of that tree until you realize I actually don't want this job anymore because I'm not very good at being God um, and how much freedom I find when I let him do that job and I let my universe revolve around him um, because I think what we're finding is the secular gospel that is being preached, which is what I just said, is kind of starting to, is failing and people are starting to see it, which means... I believe Jesus is about to become more and more and more beautiful to thousands and thousands and thousands of people who never in a million years ever thought he would, which creates an amazing opportunity for the church to do what the church does best. And so being bold about, here's, here's the truth, Gen Z. Um, it's a North Star that cares about you showing them why everything they're going through and all the questions they're asking are actually found in Scripture, pointing them to that, and showing them, hey, what if a truth claim, because Gen Z is very skeptical to truth claims, and big organizations like the church and government, they start from a place of distrust. But if you can show them, hey, what if a truth claim showed up dressed in grace? By the way, that's what makes Christianity different than Every other major belief system on this planet is a truth claim that actually showed up dressed in grace. That is not the story of just religion, which is humanity trying to earn and deserve our way to God because of this chasm that has separated us from him called sin. And religion teaches you better find a way to get to him. And Christianity is the one belief system that stands out and says there's actually a God who is truth, who came dressed in grace to get you when you were never able to get to, to him. And that story is appealing. And I believe it's going to become more appealing in these coming years to Generation Z. I really do. Yeah, the balance of grace and truth is obviously what Jesus was just so incredible at showing us how to operate with people. And I think as secular humanism, which is the religion of our time that everyone's running into, as that fails people, it's the role of the church to not say, told you so. It's to say, okay, come home now. I'm going to welcome you with open arms. That's how Jesus was so beautiful, like the, so beautiful in the way he operated with people, the woman caught in adultery, that he stands and defends her and shows her grace first. He doesn't start with, I told you so. He starts with, hey, I will stand for you. Your problem's your sin. That's now my problem. And then he tells her, go and sin no more. There's, there's truth for you. And I remember as a college student, I, I, would, I started to read the Bible, and a lot of, I didn't really understand the tone of Jesus, and I still had that idea that he was kind of out to get me and the, find every reason not to welcome me into the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so I'd read things like the Sermon on the Mount when he says, oh, well, you think you're, you're crushing this because you haven't killed anyone, but you have anger in your heart. And I was like, Jeez, like, this guy's going to just checkmate me on everything. Um, I remember reading a um, verse about do not get drunk on wine for it leads to debauchery. And I was like, perfect. I drink beer, so that's no problem. Um, and came into, 
came into this idea that everybody was going to try to find every reason to disqualify me and tell me, I told you so. Um, but when I started to actually have the people around me, um, people, older generations, some of my peers that were living the gospel out and showing me the balance, that beautiful grace and truth that I so desperately needed, I needed that hug of grace first to just be told, hey, just as you are right now, as broken as you are, you're welcome in this place. You have a family that loves you. Um, we just love you too much to let you stay right here where you are. And that invitation, go and sin no more, leave the life you're living right now, I started to hear that through the lens of because this is not what's best for you. Because maybe you can portray that Friday and Saturday night out on the hill and at Pearl, like that's living the dream. But the Monday morning shame that's following, that's not the freedom of Christ. That's not the freedom that he wants for you. And as we welcome in people who are going to walk in and they're beat up from trying everything in this world, from being failed by secular humanism, being failed by a culture that's telling them, we've got everything you need and it doesn't work, that we be that place to say, we love you, we're with you, we'll journey with you. And the truth that we have to tell you and the life that Jesus is inviting you into, it's because it's what's best for you and it's what your soul deeply, deeply Graves. I had a quick thought when you were talking about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery because he gets down into the dirt next to her and calls her daughter. And I was thinking about just the facial expression of Jesus, that I don't think it's possible to say, daughter, I don't condemn you with a frown. Like, I, you can't say that without a smile on your face. Um, and it just, it, it kind of is a, an interesting question to ask, what is the countenance, what is the facial expression of God the Father towards us? And we know because of the gospel, because our position is now in Christ, that God looks at us, even though we're still a work in progress, he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. Therefore, God looks at us and has the, the countenance and the smile and the look of just a, a proud father, that he will call you, um, he will call you uh, free while you're still an addict. He will call you righteous while you're still imperfect. He will, he, it's already but not yet, and he looks at you now and he sees Jesus. And uh, I think, you know, as a, I, I kind of grew up thinking, and one of the reasons I stayed away from the church was, you, you know, everybody thinks who's been out for a while, I'm going to get struck by lightning or I'm not going to be accepted or value. I'm going to be judged when I come back in. And, and so one, one thing, and I, I see, like, Don, John, you got, like, I, I see your facial expressions. Don, you've been smiling this entire time. The countenance on your face is just, I feel like that's the heart of, of the Father. And I remember I have a mentor, Gary. Gary is 74, and two years ago, um, I started meeting with him, and he invited me to be real like Ethan said, uh, I think Gen Z, they're not hungry for, every, like, for people who are always right or perfect, but just something that's real. And they want to show up to a place where they're free to be real. And Gary invited me to be real, and I just kind of started confessing stuff and saying things I had never told anybody. And he had a, an important critical role in that moment. And everything was about his facial expression while I was sort of given all of my deepest, darkest stuff. And had he had a scowl on his face, that would mess with me still to this day. And he owned that opportunity to have, I think, the countenance of a father with just this, this smile of, man, I'm just proud. And I think Gen Z is hungry for the smile of a proud father. 
This is an interesting question, but, and we should just ask this about our church too in Austin. If our church had a face, what would the countenance be? And would it match the countenance of Jesus kneeling in the dirt next to that woman? Would it match the countenance of this, of this father? And that, I feel like we portray a countenance through everything we do and how we say it and the tone we say. Like, how many know you can quote Jesus but not have his tone and completely miss the heart of God? That's why social media arguments are just pointless. Because you can say truth, but there's no relationship, there's no facial expression, there's no tone of Jesus, and it actually does damage. And so if, if the church had a facial expression, what is the countenance? I think that's a good question to ask. And the beautiful thing we were met with, because I expected when I showed up here the first time that that countenance was this. <laughs> but was met with the smile of the annex. Um, I came back because of that. I kept coming. I kept listening. Even when I pretended I wasn't, acted like I was too cool for school, it was that smile, it was that grace, and it was also the truth that was speaking. And sometimes I didn't like it, but it was getting me um, right here in my soul. And um, I just think what we, we are known for so much historically as a church is dying on all the wrong hills when Jesus died on the one hill that needed to be died on. And if we're venturing into the faraway land as missionaries right here in our own city, I mean, you talk about a mission field. I don't even know how many thousands of students are on that campus right now. Um, but that's, the faraway land is a few blocks away. And that journey for them to get here is like the Israelites taking 40 years, right? But for you, it's a couple blocks. Um, but if we're going to go into the faraway land, then we have to be willing to learn the language. Like Paul, right? Like I became to the Gentiles like a Gentile and to the Jews like a Jew. Like I went and I learned what they were in. I didn't lose myself within it. I didn't fall into the ways of the world, but I learned how to adapt and how to change the method when it needed to be changed so that people could hear the message of Jesus. And it's so much easier to just go, well, this is just how we've always done it. Um, we as a staff constantly, like every week, we go, okay, what are we doing well and what can we do better? What needs to be changed? What are we doing in such a way that it, those two guys walk in here that don't have much clue what's going on and feel like this is what's coming? How do we change that? How do we pivot? How do we, how do we move instead of just saying, well, we like the way that we do things, so we're just going to keep doing it that way, and everybody else should just like to adapt to that? But that's the same consciousness that we don't like about our culture that's saying, well, it's my truth, and everybody needs to adapt to mine, right? Like we have sometimes the exact same posture or ways that we go about it, uh, but our, our message that everybody wants to hear, we just have to keep figuring out how do we go into the faraway land and speak it in a new way, speak it in a different way, welcome people to it in a way that maybe we haven't been doing before and go in there with confidence knowing that they, they want to hear what we have to say. That's really good. Um, I know, I, I read a study recently about Christianity statistically that said, barring a move of God, in our country, the church is in an irreversible decline. So that's sobering. Let that sink in just for a second. Barring a move of God, the church in the U.S. is in an irreversible decline. First time I read that, I panicked until I remembered we have a God who moves. And I think he 
really, really is about to. Barring a move of God, the church is in a decline, but we have a God who moves. But I think also there is a perspective and posture shift from followers of Jesus, from the builders of the church, um, that also just needs to take place because we are so good at, at uh, you know, looking at the millennials, looking at Gen Z, looking at the future of, of the church and, and the leaders of, of tomorrow and seeing all the problems with it. Um, and, and not that it's, we, I mean, we should be realistic. We're not, you know, ostriches with our heads in the sand pretending there's no problems. Um, faith won't fix like what you won't face. And so like, let's, let's face that and deal with it. Um, however, the posture and perspective shift is, do you see the problems or do you see potential and people? Do you see the field? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And for those few workers to get passionate about going and reaping and harvesting, you need to love the field that God has given us and not, not wish it, it was like it used to be or, or hope that God gives us a different field. We got our field. It's up to us to, to start loving it. There's a movie, Apollo 13. Has anybody seen this? It's one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, Apollo 13 was known as the successful failure because they, they never made it to their moon. Their mission failed. However, they got all three men back home safely, despite the fact that half of their spaceship exploded in space on day three of a seven-day journey because of a group of people in Houston working tirelessly in the command center to bring these three men home. Now, in the movie, it comes down to the very last minute. And if I'm going to ruin it for you, I mean, this has been out for two decades. That's on you. That's not on me, okay? Um, and I hope you know that what happens historically in that story. But it's coming down to the last minute. The command module with the three men, they're about to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and they don't know if it's going to work or not. It all comes down to this. And in, in movie, there's a scene where they're, in Houston, there's these two guys having a conversation about all the problems and everything that could go wrong. And they're going back and forth, and they're going, man, the heat shield, it might be cracked, and, and it might catch on fire and explode in the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, the parachutes might be blocks of ice because for three days they haven't been heated in space, and the trajectory could be off, and there's a typhoon warning. And one of the guys says, and I quote, this will be the worst disaster NASA has ever experienced. And what they don't know is a man by the name of Gene Kranz who is the flight director, is standing right behind them and eavesdropping on the conversation. And he says very calmly, but with a lot of authority in that moment, he says, with all due respect, gentlemen, um, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. And it was. It was. So I think the temptation for us is to look at our field and look at our cultural moment and see all the problems and all the things that could go wrong and go, my gosh, look at Gen Z, look at the millennials, look at the watering down and relativity of truth, look at the rise of the nuns, N-U-N, and the people who want nothing to do with faith or religion at all. Look at the fact that 70% of young people fall away from their faith their freshman year of college. Look at the... Look at, look at how faith is on an irreversible decline right now. This could be the worst decade the church has ever experienced. And can I just say, with all due respect, I believe this is going to be the church in the U.S.'s finest hour. 
this decade that is coming up. I believe this is where the church is at her best. I believe this is where we rise to the occasion. I don't see problems as much as I see people and potential worth sacrificing for, that I love this next generation. I love our cultural moment. I love the field that God has given us to harvest. And and one of my pet peeves is when people will say to us, I fear for the world that your kids are going to have to grow up in. And while I get that, I really, really do. I also want to say, hey, with all due respect, I believe my kids are going to grow up in the church during her finest hour. I really do. This is when the church is at its best, when we're marginalized and pushed to the side and there's persecution. Persecution, by the way, is like a, is like, um, is like a nail. Like the church is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper you drive it. And that's where Christians um, get our passion back. It's almost like when, it, when things are too comfortable and going too well, there's apathy and it lulls us to sleep and we end up just doing church rather than following Jesus and remembering our first love. And so don't fear the fact that, that the church might be in a decline and that, and that Christians might continue to be marginalized. I think that's going to serve almost as like cold water over, over sleepy souls to wake us up and bring us back to life and go, oh man, this is, this is, like, this is eternity. This is eternity. This is, the life is a mist here today and gone tomorrow, and I am not going to live and exist as if the point of life is to arrive safely at death one day because we got a mission to build the church, and we got people to reach. And this next decade, with all my heart, I believe we're going to rise to the occasion, and this will be the church's finest hour. I really do. The, the prayer that I, w- I want to pray all together um, comes from the early church, and Peter and John get arrested when they heal the blind beggar, and they get brought before the Sanhedrin, and they're telling these guys, stop talking about Jesus, because they're out there telling everybody, hey, um, this Jesus that you killed, he's very much alive, and we're not going to stop telling people about this. Stop telling people about Jesus, trying to put all the fear into them that they can, and they have this great verse that was like, it clicked for us right here in this building that we went out into the life of ministry we did because of what they said. Hey, we can't help but speaking about what we've seen and heard. So often for me, I think I, I can wonder, like, who am I to say something to this 19-year-old? And because of my story, when I get authentic and I realize the truth of Jesus and the grace of Jesus in my life, my question shifts to, who am I not to tell this kid about Jesus? Because somebody did that for me, and it's changed everything. And so Peter and John get arrested and, uh, oh, thank you. They get arrested. They go back to, uh, they get sent out, freed, and told, hey, don't talk about Jesus or we're going to kill you. Okay, we have a deal here. They go back to the church, back to the early believers. And they all gather together, and they're talking about what's going on, and they all start praising God in the midst of crazy persecution, their lives being threatened. Rome hunting them, the Sanhedrin threatening to kill them. They come together and they pray. And they don't pray for safety. They don't pray for comfort. They don't pray for things to get easier. They pray for boldness. Boldness to go back out every single day and keep preaching the gospel of Jesus. No matter what the world's going to throw at them, no matter the threats that come at them, they're going to go bold in the way they love people. Not in an I told you so, arms crossed demeanor but in boldness to go show people the love of Jesus and say, who am I not to tell people about what I've seen and heard and what he's done for us? And at 
I think for so long, um, church in America has been comfortable. You build it and people would come and that's not the case anymore. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's a beautiful thing that we have a generation that doesn't really have much context for Jesus because we don't have to sift through so much church baggage that a lot of us have in our testimonies. We're, get, we're dealing with a clean slate. And you don't have to fear people into Jesus. You love them into Jesus. You don't have to scare them. You don't have to hold this demeanor and, and point out every reason why they shouldn't be here. You get to show them every reason why they are invited to the table because of what he's done for us. And that's going to come through our boldness and how we love and how we reach people so different than us that believe things different than us, that have a secularist or whatever ideology that we go, wow, I don't, that is so counter to what I believe in the truth that I see in Jesus. But the way that we boldly go engage in conversation, that we become bridge builders to them, that we find the common ground and say, of course you're desperately looking for fulfillment. We all are. Of course, social media or drugs or whatever you're doing with your depression, all these things you're going through, of course that's present in your life because you don't know your Savior. There's this idea in our culture that what we need to be saved from is the idea that we need to be saved in the first place. And that's leading everybody to become God of their own life and think, I can save myself and I can do this all on my own. And it's failing and it's failing. And that's, this is why the church will have its finest hour because we have the answer in Jesus. And if we ask for that boldness, now just, we've been laughing about this. When you pray bold prayers, there's a lot of us that don't or maybe stop because we just think like, I don't know if that, that's actually going to get answered. There's also a fear when you pray for something like that God might actually do it. Right? Like we pray like, God, would, would you take us on a, a journey around the world and go to other countries? And then when some of you started donating and we got to buy plane tickets, we're looking at each other like, should we have prayed that? Because now we have to go. We prayed to get to plant a church together and go to a city to reach prodigals and people who don't know Jesus. And then there was a day where we were packing up U-Hauls going, well, God answered that bold prayer, didn't he? And now our whole lives are shifting. And so it can be intimidating and scary. But this is our roots as the church. We are bold people in the way that we love the people who don't know Jesus. We don't draw boundaries and borders and hold people away. We invite everybody in just like he did. And so I want to I pray. I think is our, time, our time's probably up. Okay. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Let me pray real quick, and then we'll do some questions. But um, would you just, like, open your hands in a posture of receiving boldness from Jesus? Father, we pray this morning as your church, not a building, but a people. We pray for the boldness that those who went before us asked for, that in the midst of a world who seems to want nothing to do with you, a world that seems to want nothing to do with us, that you would give us the boldness to go love people, to welcome them to your table, that you would give us the boldness to reach to somebody different than us, that you would give us the boldness to simply be real and authentic and be maybe the one place, the one conversation, the one lunch where there's some truth told. Father, we pray that you would send us out with that boldness for the harvest. I pray, I pray over this campus that I love so much and all of the people in this city specifically this young generation, Generation Z, that are in this faraway land, that are lost and broken, would you break our hearts for the fact that they are searching and searching and not finding it, not finding what they're looking for, and would you give us the boldness to go show them your love, that our outreach, the way that we reach two people, would be more powerful than our services. I pray that you would shift um, boldness in us to look at how we're doing things and be willing to pivot as we, we take your message 
to a world that desperately needs us. I pray over the people in this room that, that for all of us, God, it's so easy for us to disqualify ourselves and think nobody wants to hear what, the, what we have to say, that you would just remove that and change that to a bold drive for people and a confidence in the gospel that you have put into us, that every single one of us still has breath in our lungs, and that means that you still have purpose for us in this life. Would you fill your church with boldness? And we ask as a church in Austin and in Boulder and as the big church in this world that this would be our finest hour because of the boldness of your church and how we love and welcome people home. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We, we have a chance for some questions because we're, we're actually ahead of schedule. Anybody have one? I want to bring a mic to you if that's okay. Tell us who you are, where you're from. I am Laurel Andrews. I was born in Boulder, Colorado. So um, my question is, can you talk to us a little bit about what your church looks like in your everyday doings, and how do you run church? Is it Sunday morning? Is it Saturday night? Is it in the dark? Is it a rock band? Is it, you know, like, what are you doing that's, what are the trends that the Gen Zers are maybe drawn towards? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and I'll tell you what we're doing right now, um, and it might look different in five years, because, yeah, so we, our, our room is dark, and we got lights, and we got a loud sound system. And part of the loud sound system, the heart behind that is, uh, if you're like me, then you can, and you're terrible at singing, you can sing loud and nobody else can hear you, and so you'll actually worship freely. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're very, it's, it's, uh, it's screens and all these things that, are, that we see simply as just like tools for helping us get the message across. I don't know if that will, if that will change um, with Gen Z wanting, like there, there might be a, a shift back towards, I think there is also like a hunger in the younger generation for more of that uh, like traditional aspects as well. I don't think it'll like for us would, would shift like the pendulum completely over to this side. But um, yeah, right now we do church on Sunday mornings. Um, we, uh, it's a very... Um, welcoming, lively culture. Um, we, we put a lot of energy in, uh, into creating a culture that we believe looks and feels as much like heaven as possible. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and part of that is the cultures that we create. We have a, a spirit of celebration. We have a spirit of, of fun. We have a spirit of, of grace first, followed by truth. Um, but yeah, do you, do you have anything to add to that? That's a great question. Yeah, I think one of the things that we're learning a lot is um, however we're doing church, that we are always aware of the people in the room who have no context for what's going on. So our, one of our friends was just telling us a story of when he was first following Jesus. He was at a church that would just sing a song that was just the word hallelujah over and over and over again. And he'd just sing along because that's what you do. And he said worship changed for him the day that the worship leader stopped for five seconds and said, hey, we're singing this song. And the word hallelujah just means praise be to God. And so we're just going to sing that. And all of a sudden he thought, oh my gosh, I can, I can praise God. I have so much to praise God for. And it, it made sense to him. And so I think the, the methods we're doing, we're trying to translate to people. Here's what we do because it's so easy to do church for church people. It's so easy to preach to just people who already know the Bible and say things like, well, as everybody knows, you know, the story of Ezekiel and the dry bones and people in our church are looking at us like, is that a Halloween story? Like, what are you talking about? 
And so we have, to, we have to shift how we do church, looking at it through the lens of all the people in our room, not watering anything down, but explaining things and welcoming anybody in who doesn't have an understanding of so much of what we just know to be normal within the church and be doing church for people who aren't churched in a post-church culture. And so um, we also put a lot of effort into the way we engage people on social media to be a light there because we know that 95% of our church is on there. And we put posts out as prayers. Everything we put out there, we want it to be a light in a stream of just so much content and what this person ate for lunch and that person bought at Target and this person's political rant that we want to put the light of Jesus there where they are. We do things like play sports. We have sports leagues that people sign up for. It's much easier to invite your friend to come play volleyball that never wants to go to church. But we have people who their baptism testimony is, I showed up to play volleyball with these Christian people that I would never have gone to their church. And I started to be around this community and all of a sudden, I showed up to a church service, and God grabbed hold of my heart. And so um, sports groups, all these outreach, the way that we work in our city and try to partner with organizations and go be the hands and feet of Jesus to show our city that we're for you. We're here to serve Austin and celebrate the beauty of this city and the people in it um, and do it in a way that it's accessible for somebody that didn't grow up in church and doesn't know the story of Ezekiel and doesn't know what the word hallelujah means and do it through that lens. Over here. Well, thanks so much. My name is David Greenley, living south of Atlanta. I've been a missionary sent by the church since 81, something like that. Um, I was looking at your website and saw that you also have, not just here, but you have in Brussels. I'm just curious, having lived many years in Europe and with a Belgian son-in-law, do you know anything about the, uh, the Brussels and what's different, what's the same other than language? Yeah, we were just with um, the couple who's overseeing the Brussels location, which is kind of a funny story. We tell people, like, we've got locations in Denver, in prisons in Colorado, in Austin, Texas, and then, of course, in Brussels, Belgium. Um, <laughs> through some pastors and collaboration in Europe, there, um, Brussels is very much a transient city, a lot of expats, a lot of people from all different cultures. Um, and so an English-speaking church that has translation invites a lot of different people in. Um, and so that started maybe six years ago and has been so different than church here. Um, just talking with that couple, what they navigate with so many different cultures, um, people around the world coming in. But it's been a beautiful thing for them to see that no matter where all these different backgrounds coming in, that the truth of the gospel is real no matter where you came from. And, um, and so they have had to learn how to lead worship in a way that people are singing in different languages. There's headphones that you can check out when you show up, and there's live translation happening of the sermon into your language. Um, and trying to be a church that reaches a, a very vast demographic in Brussels, which has been a difficult journey. People in Europe want to go to church even less than people in America. So it has been a lot of toil, but um, they have seen a lot of amazing fruit from working hard. I, I have a quick question for you, if it's okay. Um, first of all, this is not a new message. When he was talking about the countenance of the church, if a church had a face, um, for those of you who are here, you might remember uh, a pastor, Erder, who once said, sometimes I feel like Presbyterians look like they've been weaned on pickles. <laughs> I remember that from growing up. It's sort of that same thing. What do you do when someone who's not a Gen Zer? Someone who's older, like, I don't know, us, me, um, came into your church and, 
and they don't, it doesn't, they don't, do you speak to them too? Do they get as welcomed as everybody else or, because, yeah, you, don't. you know what I'm saying? Because we'd be like, I don't know, this is really loud and it's smoky and I don't know what to do. We, we, so the countenance of our church starts with our parking team and our greeting team. Um, I tell them, our volunteers, I see more Google reviews about if somebody said hi to another person when they walked into a church for the first time, smiled at them, than I do about theology. It's the experience people have. And so we tell our parking team and our greeters, hey, you have to go the extra mile with everybody who walks in here, and we challenge them, especially people who look different than you. And that's um, the other thing I think that we try to voice a lot to people that walk in our church and go, I feel like I'm the, the dad here, or the grandpa here. We go, please stay here because we need you in this place. If our church is probably 70% people younger than me, um, man, we need mentors. Man, we need wisdom. And so we really ask the older generation to engage with our church and to be um, the wild people that are going to be a part of the party. And it might be a little loud. It might be a little crazy. But say, hey, um, we know, like, some of you have the maturity to show up to church not for yourself, but to show up here for everybody who needs to know Jesus. And we need you to be here to help walk with them. And that goes back to what we talked about of it's easy to think, well, they don't want to hear from me. And we try to just flip that constantly and say, no, you don't know how badly we need to hear from you. Anyone else? Lorraine. She's from my church. <laughs> from your church. Thank you, John. I am Lorraine Trotter, 20-year member of First President, five-year member of uh, Presbyterian Church of Broomfield. Thanks for what you've said, and I was really taken by the comments about speaking one-on-one -on -one and the, whoever took you to coffee or lunch. Can you give me an example of how someone my age makes that overture and how to kick off a conversation like that? There's probably like ministry strategy as far as like a mentoring program that could be set up and a one-on-one -on -one pairing and a opportunity for college students to, or young adults to sign up and say, hey, I'd love a mentor and then a pool of you who've made yourselves available if you have that ability and bandwidth. But I think it honestly goes to the simple boldness to walk up to a young person and go, hey, this might sound weird. This might be uncomfortable. Um, I'd love to take you to lunch. I would love to get to know you because there's so much value in you and you're the future of the church. When Sam and Brandon, just they were just a few years older than me, but when they asked me to go to lunch with them, I was like, why would you do that? I already have friends, you already have friends, why do you need to take me to lunch? I didn't know about like the Christian date, right? Where you, you go and get to know each other. Um, somebody like Don that just looked at a young guy and just went, hey, let's go to lunch. Um, I'd love to get to know you and hear about your life and help you in any way that I can. That sounds, that's intimidating. But in the same way I tell our greeters, hey, if somebody's older than you, make sure they feel welcome here. I would tell somebody older, hey, if you see somebody young, just go talk to them and initiate. Um, and I know that sounds intimidating, but that would be my simple answer to that. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Yeah, or even if you don't want to go all the way to, like, immediately initiating, like, lunch or coffee, you could simply start the conversation by, I have actually seen this play out, and I heard a story about it two days ago. Um, going up to a young person, whether you see them at a grocery store or on campus or at a coffee shop, and asking God just to give me some words of encouragement just to go tell that person. 
Uh, I had somebody back in college randomly come up to me and say, hey, you don't know me. I just wanted to say, like, I, I feel like God loves you. I, in fact, I know he does, but I think there's something special on your life, and, and I just wanted to tell you that. That is speaking life over somebody. I, I think Generation Z gets very little life spoken over them. <laughs> Certainly by the world, by media, social media, movies, you know, very, like a lot, of, a lot of death spoken over, a lot of here's all the statistics and here's why you're going to be another one. And to have a, a voice of authority. And I, yeah, even and our friend Jill did this at Starbucks two days ago. And she, she said, I, I saw this group of three high school girls at Starbucks and I felt like I was just, uh, and she walked up and she said, I was timid at first. And then something clicked in my spirit and I realized, you know what? I'm a grown woman. I'm old enough to be your mom. I'm going to speak with some authority. And she said, I, I want to tell you three girls, God sees you and God loves you. And there's something special on your life. And it did not lead to a coffee, a future coffee meeting. Um, but that was seeds planted. They're, they're not going to forget that. That does not happen very often for the younger generation. And so going up with, with that kind of authority and that kind of countenance and, and simply just speaking a tiny nugget of, of, of life or truth um, over somebody I think is a big deal. And, and also, I think, speaking of bold prayers, there are certain prayers that I feel like God just loves to answer <laughs> where he doesn't go, let me think about that and get back to you. And I think one of them is God... Would you, would you help me rendezvous? Just give me one, give me one Gen Z person and, and let me know, give me discernment to know, go talk to her. Just go say hi, go say hi to him. The last thing I'd say is just prepare your heart. If you do get the chance to go meet with somebody, get lunch um, and be a place, maybe the one place of an older person who's not shocked by them, not shocked by their life. And be somebody who's consistently willing to encourage and love them despite whatever's going on in their life. Um, they, they will expect to be given up on. They will expect that they'll make a mistake or do something. And this church person, this Christian woman, this person that is trying to speak truth in their life is going to give up on them. Because they'll reach a point where it's like, this is too much for me. This is too much of a mess. But to be like Jesus and be like, nothing shocks me. I'm, here for, I'm, here, I'm just here as a safe place for you. And I'm going to stick with you and not give up on you, even when you want to give up on yourself. Okay, we have uh, reached 11.20. Uh, lunch is at 11.30. So, and we've been sitting here a long time. Um, I would like to uh, let you know that you have 10 minutes to mill about, talk to people, um, talk to a Gen Z person. There's some, might be outside. Um, <laughs> and don't, don't jump on them, but just say, yeah, we need, as older people, you need the courage to do that. And I'm going to pray that as well. I'm, I'm also told I'm supposed to pray for lunch now. Uh, I come from a church where they say, we can't eat until the pastor prays. It's like, no, everybody can pray. And, and just, yeah, just go with that. So let me, let me close us in prayer. Um, and if you have further questions for Ethan... Or Doug, uh, they'll, they'll be around as well. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Ethan and Doug. Thank you for church plants. Thank you for offering us um, new generations. And, and the, even though it's, 
It's scary to approach a, new, a younger generation, and it's scary for younger people to approach an older one. And it's so much easier to criticize. Lord, I, I ask that you would break down those barriers. I ask that you would give us courage, give us bravery to step out of the comfort zone. Help us to even have the courage to pray that, Lord, that we might take a step and just let you run with it. Lord, we know you love us. We know you love the new generations coming up, the children here, the old people as well. You love us all. You died for us on the cross. Lord, I ask that you would give us the courage to do this. Give us the wisdom and the insight to say the words and, and speak through us as, as we are your church and we want to do what you want us to do. Thank you for the food that's been prepared for us, Lord. Help us to enjoy it, and uh, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.